0: Expert insights with Lidium. Can you remember a time when you've been fired up about making a positive lifestyle change? Perhaps exercising more, resisting chocolate, quitting smoking or getting to bed before midnight? Most of us have set ourselves admirable goals, knowing that these new behaviours will boost our health and vitality. Yet you, like me, might also have experienced that replacing an old habit with a new one is not always straightforward. Fortunately, practical help is at hand. I greatly admire the work of our guest, who has thought long and hard about the science of positive change. Dr Kelly McGonigal is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. The author of several books including the international bestseller The Willpower Instinct, she skillfully translates insights from psychology, the wisdom traditions and neuroscience into practical strategies that support personal well-being. In this compelling conversation, Kelly shares many proven techniques to help you turbocharge your willpower so you can climb your personal Everest.
1: So I define willpower as the ability to make choices that are consistent with your big goals and your deepest values. So you're basically saying yes to the things that matter deeply, even when it's uncomfortable or scary or difficult or you're exhausted. It's basically, are you able to say yes to those things that really deeply matter to you? a lot of people start with some very funny definitions of willpower that set us up for problems with change. Some people think willpower is never struggling. Like if I have willpower, I'll never be tempted. I'll never be tired. I'll never be distracted. And so you look out at the world and you see people who have made difficult changes or who are committed to a healthy lifestyle and you think, oh, well, that's because they've never wanted a cookie or they've never been tempted to drink too much, or they never get tired and they bound out of bed, ready to run a marathon. That's willpower. That's not what willpower is. You know, one of the things that I've learned from working with so many people with behavior change is that everyone is struggling with something. And when you see people who find it easy to say, have a healthy lifestyle, so for example, I'm vegan, that is not hard for me. I'm not tempted by a hamburger, never gonna happen. Uh, my willpower challenges are more about doing things that scare me. And you could look at me and say, oh, she's so healthy. She has so much willpower. Well, actually, the strength of my willpower comes from doing things that make me anxious. And I think that that's something, it's really important aspect of, of willpower to recognize that in order to have willpower or to make important changes, you need to get very clear about what you want so that when these barriers come up, Whether they're emotions or compulsions, addictions, temptations, or distractions, if you aren't clear about what you want, who you are, what you want to offer the world, uh, it is very easy to be swayed by that present moment desire to be comfortable or to be immediately gratified. The other definition I'll say of willpower that gets people in trouble is they think willpower is forcing themselves to do things they don't really want to do. So maybe someone will say, I want to quit smoking. And then if you're thinking of willpower as forcing yourself to do something you don't really want, it means as soon as they've said, I'm going to quit smoking, there's a voice in their head that says, well, I don't want to do that and you can't make me. And instead of thinking about, actually, I would like to live a few extra decades and I would love to be a good role model for my children instead of poisoning them slowly with my secondhand smoke. Like things that they actually already agree with. As soon as you're thinking of willpower as forcing yourself to do things you don't want, then that resistance we talked about becomes primed and becomes stronger because we all want to feel like we have some level of autonomy. We don't like to be controlled by shoulds or by what other people want us to do. And sometimes we become that other person when our motivated self sets a goal and then the self who doesn't want to be controlled is going to get into that kind of battle. So we'll start from that definition of it's the ability to do what matters most, to make those choices, even when it's difficult. Um, and I often talk about strengthening three different aspects of willpower. One is the want power. You know, before I get out of bed every morning, I think about what my values are and I think about what might challenge them today. Think about what I have to do, what I want to do, um, what might distract me, how I want to be in the world today. And I won't get out of bed until I've done that. It's super important. And you're basically planting the seeds of want power, priming your brain to remember it when you get the phone call or your kid is sick and everything's starting to go crazy. Is some part of you still going to remember? Um, yes. Also, self care. Yes. Also, prioritize this other thing. And the other two skills are um, I won't power, which is what most people think about as willpower. That's I will, you know, I will not um, smoke that cigarette. I will not yell when I get angry. I will not complain all day. I, I will not sleep in. Um, and then the I will power, which is what are you going to do? And so we need to be able to inhibit our more harmful impulses, but we also need to find this positive motivation to approach things that, um, that are boring or difficult or uncomfortable or new. And what's interesting is when you block it out that way, you'll realize many people already have one aspect of willpower down, solid, strong. Like, I'm really good at the I won't power stuff. Born that way seems to go along with um, being highly anxious is a lot of self-control. Uh, but that I will power stuff of having to step up, say yes, be brave, um, to put myself first, all that sort of that I will, that's more challenging um, and, you know, some people I work with, it's like they have a lot of resources, but they have no clue what they want. And so it's very easy for them to get lost in what their families want for them or what their coworkers or employer wants for them. And they need to really strengthen that I want power. So one of the first challenges for any sort of willpower project is to do a little self-analysis and see what really is your biggest saboteur right now. Is it that you don't, you don't know what you want? Is it that... You are giving in to impulses that are very destructive or counterproductive. Or is it that you know what you want, you're really good at saying no to distractions, but you are really bad at finding that positive energy to go after it?
2: So what say we set ourselves a, a meaningful willpower project. We harness the I want... And then we're going along, okay, say, for example, you know, we're quitting smoking, we're eating more healthily, we're exercising more, some of the, the, the common goals we set. And then we hit a really intense day. Mm-hmm. Stress, you know, descends upon us. And all of a sudden, we rapidly revert back to those behaviors that we were trying to get over. Just decode why we tend to do that.
1: Yeah, there are a few reasons. One is that um, you know, certainly for the behaviors that you mentioned, like food or smoking, but also a lot of other things too. Anything we would consider addictive, like binge watching television or shopping, that there are often things we do because some part of us believes it makes us feel good. And when you are highly stressed, when you're anxious, when you're angry, often when you're sad or lonely. The brain shifts into a state that's really interesting. It sensitizes your reward system. So let's say on any given day, let's say you have very high standards for chocolate. I and mean, this is a silly example, but uh, very high standards for dark chocolate. And normally it would take an 80% single origin chocolate bar to really tempt you. Um, Cause otherwise your brain just looks at some cheap piece of chocolate and says, that's not gonna be satisfying. But when you're really stressed out or really emotionally upset, It sensitizes the brain's reward system so that it's willing to play stronger bets that something tempting will make you happy, kind of lowers its standards. So that same cheap piece of chocolate is going to be much more tempting. Your brain is going to literally be making predictions that approaching and consuming it will feel good. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why we we often revert back to counterproductive habits when we're um, really emotionally upset is because our brain is is lying to us. It's just, it's trying to push you in the direction of anything that will feel good. And the other thing that goes along with this is that when we're our most upset, the brain is also, it actually is worse at making correct predictions. So we know from research that when someone is really upset, there are things that will reliably make them feel better. One is being physically active. One is getting outdoors. One is spending time with a pet or a loved one prayer works for people who have faith. So there are some things that we know tend to really work and they are the last thing that your brain t- tells you to do, um, when you are the most upset. And so, so that's one of the reasons why. Um, but I think, you know, the other reason to think about, you know, why we fall into old habits, it's not just things that are tempting, but it's that when we're our most stressed out, also, um, how we think about ourselves and what we're capable of can change. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you're really stressed out or exhausted or upset, um, you're much more likely to also be self-critical or experience self-doubt. And so if some impulse in you says, gosh, but maybe I really should go for a walk instead, you might hear a competing voice, not a literal voice, but a feeling, a sense that, you know, why even waste your time? What's the point? Um, And, it's hard to know what that is really about <laughs> um, but it all seems to be part of some kind of evolutionary instinct to get us to, to just preserve our immediate well-being at any cost including often the cost of our future happiness.
2: Let me pick up on an idea that you seated there and that is when many of us, you know, have a setback from a goal where you know we eat the the low grade chocolate instead of maintaining our high bar of ninety percent single origin. We can tend to beat ourselves up. Yet you make a very clear argument in the neuroscience of change that this tendency towards self criticism is incredibly harmful and, in fact, inhibits our ability to actually bounce back and achieve the goal. Why is it that this self critical Really, default for most of us um, really needs to be reined in. Yeah, well, so let's just
1: start with some basic evidence for willpower challenges. Much more serious, even than than something like chocolate. There's a lot of evidence that if you have a setback and then you're hard on yourself, particularly feelings of shame, uh, feelings of having let yourself down, of having let others down. Um, but, you know, we say, you know, why did you do that? You're so stupid. that, that those feelings of shame and and regret. um, They almost always push us into a deeper downward spiral. So it's been shown with people who are struggling to stay sober, um, alcoholics and people who have other addictions. um, It's been shown for people who have really dangerous compulsions, uh, including even towards sexual violence, that when they have that first slip, even if it's just a thought, like maybe I'm going to give in to the temptation this time, as soon as they come at that, with a place of shame and self criticism, it heightens their negative feelings so strongly that you run into the problem we just discussed, which is that you're now feeling so bad, your brain is biased towards looking for the quickest relief. And even though it doesn't make a lot of logical sense, if you're beating yourself up because you spent too much money, studies show you will go shopping to make yourself feel better. It's, you know, it doesn't make sense because your brain is now that self criticism drives you away from logic and reason towards seeking relief. And other studies show that you can actually interrupt this whole cycle by forgiving yourself, which is one of the last things that people um, tend to do. People have this very strong intuition that forgiving yourself for having a setback is letting yourself off the hook. Like, I don't even know what hook you are supposed to be on. That sounds terrible. Why would you put yourself on a hook? Uh, what you're actually doing is you're sort of setting yourself free from this trap of shame and downward spiral. Um, And I think one of the reasons that that people cling so strongly to this inaccurate intuition is that they have a confusion about who they really are. So if you believe that who you really are is the addict or who you really are is the person with no self-control who wants to be lazy or wants to be bad, or, or, you know, whatever those, those labels are, and you think that's who I really am, then you feel like you're going to need guilt or shame to control yourself. And it's another reason why want power is so important, because if you wake up every day and you remind yourself what your values and your goals are, you're actually more likely when you have a setback to remember them and be able to mentor yourself back in that direction. And I've seen exactly the opposite, that so many people are afraid of how ashamed or, Disappointed they'll be if they have a setback, they won't even commit fully and wholeheartedly to the change they want to make. They're trying to protect themselves from feeling bad about a setback that hasn't already happened yet. And the danger there is if you haven't given your whole heart to a change, um, then that commitment won't be a resource when you most need it.
0: Most of us experience a setback somewhere along the line when we're trying to make a significant change. And often the first impulse is to give ourselves a hard time, feel shame and regret. Yet you make it clear that we need to unlearn this tendency and replace self-criticism with self-compassion, which for many of us isn't that easy. Why is self-compassion so important?
1: You might know that um, the scientific research that I conduct actually is on compassion and self-compassion. And you're absolutely right that most people find it more difficult to feel compassion for their own struggles than for almost anyone else's. Um, We could talk for hours about why that is. But so acknowledging that that's a challenge. What compassion is, is it is recognizing suffering, feeling connected to the one who is suffering, and wanting to do something to relieve that suffering. That's what compassion is. So self-compassion means First, you need to be able to recognize your own suffering and to not immediately want to escape it, say, by drowning your sorrows or denying it um, or saying something like, oh, well, you know, this isn't really a problem. There are Syrian refugees that's suffering. Your problems stop being, you know, a baby. There are all sorts of ways that we we choose to ignore or not recognize our suffering. And then this idea that you have to be connected to the one who's suffering, that often requires a kind of... Um, kind of perspective on what's happening that can be hard to find when you're in the middle of sadness or anger or fear. And then that last part that you have to be willing to do something to relieve that suffering, that also requires some insight. Like what in this moment is actually going to give you hope? What in this moment is going to give you strength? Many of the reasons why it's challenging is you have to lay some groundwork for all of that. You can't wait until you're in a downward spiral and then suddenly for the first time, be reflecting on what brings you hope, or who in your life can support you. Uh, you need to you need to investigate that early on, so that a part of you will remember that. The simplest strategy for self compassion when people are having that that downward spiral or, or really struggling, um, there's an exercise that self compassion researchers in general call common humanity. When you're struggling, to take a moment and recognize what kind of struggle or pain it is. Like I'm feeling really disappointed in myself right now. Or I'm feeling um, really scared about something I have to do tomorrow. Whatever that flavor is, I'm in physical pain right now. I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out, Um, to acknowledge it. And then to give yourself permission to acknowledge that this is part of what it means to be human. That it does not reveal what is uniquely screwed up about you and your life, which is where many of us go you know, if I were right for this job, I wouldn't be struggling. If I actually had the potential to change, I wouldn't have made this mistake. If I were a good parent or a good spouse, you know, that I wouldn't have done this stupid thing. Whatever the things, we think it says something about who we are in a really unique and important way. And instead of we can say, look, this is what, what it means to be human. All humans make mistakes. All human beings know what it's like to be hurt. All human beings know what it's like to experience pain or illness. And you can actually be kind of creative with this. You know, if, if, um, you know, for example, if I'm struggling to fall asleep at night because I'm worried about something the next day, as an act of self-compassion, I will open up my mind and consider imagining how many countless other people around the world right now are having trouble sleeping because of something they need to do tomorrow that they don't want to do tomorrow. And some of them are really intense. Some people are going to funerals. Some people are going to tell the truth about something they've never told the truth about before. Some people are having surgeries tomorrow that they're afraid they might not wake up from. And when you have that sort of awareness that, oh, right, this is life, and I'm not the only one in this boat. It sounds, if you're not actually in that dark moment, this probably sounds very depressing, and people will be like, why on earth would you want to think about that? Why not just imagine you're at the beach? But actually, when you're in a moment of suffering, to have the sense that you aren't alone is one of the few things that can actually help us break free from uh, that feeling of isolation that, that makes it so difficult to find self-compassion. And from that place, often what awakens in you is a sense of compassion for everyone who's in that boat. And you think, oh, all of these people who are scared or experiencing self-doubt or are um, feeling uh, upset about how they let other people down or whatever it is. Um, you think, wow, I really, I feel for them. That's so difficult. It is such a difficult experience or feeling to have. And then that compassion gets kind of redirected onto yourself because you're part of that group. And it's kind of magical how it works, um, but you have to experience it um, to really have a sense of how freeing this can be. And from that place, suddenly one can think, okay, so all these other people are being brave. I can be brave. Or all these other parents have made a mistake. uh, And I'm just going to double down on how much I love my kid and want to be a good parent. There's just something comes up that can mentor you through whatever the setback or the challenge is. So that's so think about the other people in the same boat. That's my practice for self compassion.
0: A lovely practice that you share is the letter of self compassion to help us tame the inner critic. Can you talk us through that practice?
1: Yeah. So a letter of self-compassion, one of the things that this really takes advantage of is that our natural compassionate instinct is directed at someone else that you are in relationship with. So you see a puppy who looks sad or your partner or spouse is angry. When you see someone you care about and they're upset, it's that attention to them that awakens your compassionate instinct. So when it's your own stress and suffering it's like there's, you can't, how do you attend to yourself when you are the one who's suffering? And one way to do that is to write a letter. So the idea is that you take a moment and you write a letter to yourself in the second person. So if I'm doing this for myself, I write, Dear, actually I'm left-handed, so I'm going to write, Dear Kelly, um, I know that you are feeling really upset right now and you are ruminating about what happened yesterday. And then you go on to basically empathize with myself, but I use the word you. And I really try to describe in a mindful, direct way, what I'm feeling, what the situation is, and why it's difficult or painful. So I've said all these things. You know, I, I know that you're upset, I know that you're feeling, I know that you're wondering. And then you shift into uh, a message of common humanity. That would be, um, I want you to remember, you're not the only one who has made this mistake, or felt this way, or knows what um, physical pain feels like. Whatever that message of common humanity is, you say it to yourself. And then you say to yourself, whatever it is you really need to hear. And you can imagine that you are talking to a loved one who is in that situation. And what would you say to that loved one or that friend? Uh, Or depending on the type of suffering, I also say sometimes you have to think about what if you were a mentor? But if it was like a younger version of you who was struggling, what advice would you give him or her? Sometimes it's a slightly different perspective than just a friend or a child. What would you say to someone you love? You say that message to yourself and um, tell yourself exactly what you need to hear. Put it away, step away. And then one minute later, an hour later, a week later, you go back to that letter and you read it as if it were a letter to you from someone who deeply cares about you, because it is.
0: In her audiobook, The Neuroscience of Change, our guest Kelly McGonigal maps a proven process for realising your most important goals. Here's the essence of the technique. First, set yourself a meaningful goal. Then link it to your deepest motivation and your highest values. For example, say you're deeply motivated by helping people. Then your goal might be, I want to eat more healthy food because I want to live a long and energetic life where I'm in service to people in our community. Now you need to commit to one specific behavior change. Let's stick with the healthy eating goal. This one behavior change might be that I will bring salads for my lunch work. Remember to set yourself up for success and make sure this one change is practical and achievable. In the next step, you identify in advance the possible obstacles that could get in the way of your one behaviour change, and you work out your plan B ahead of time. For example, one morning your routine might be interrupted, so you don't have a chance to make your salad for lunch. Your plan B might be that you find a few shops near work where you can buy a decent salad. And say you have a setback, a colleague buys you a cheese and ham croissant that you just can't resist. Please remember, don't be hard on yourself. Remember to keep yourself accountable for your goals. However, shaming yourself and being self-critical undermines your willpower. Self-compassion is key to getting back on track and embedding this new habit. Kelly explains that the other way to boost your willpower is to team up and make change social.
1: So much of our behaviour is shaped by our relationships and our environment. And so there are a lot of ways to make change social. And those are a few things I would definitely add to our list. So one example is to get a role model. That already makes it social. It doesn't even have to be someone you know. But maybe you can find a memoir, a story. You, you can know that this type of change is possible. And to have that in your mind, because we know that once someone has seen a narrative uh, that awakens in them sort of the desire to follow in that path, it already it's, it's paving the path for them. So that's one way to make it social. Find other people who share your goal. That, uh, it seems to kind of outsource your willpower when you have the least of it. So if you are part of a team and you're all trying to make a change and you're having a really bad day, they can lift you up and support you and remind you of your goal. Um, And another uh, version of making change social is to have a bigger than self goal that if you are trying to make a change because you think it is in service of something bigger than yourself that you care about, that is like, it's like, um, it's like a power pack for your willpower. It's like extra jet fuel. For whatever reason, bigger than self-motivation seems to be stronger than purely self-focused motivation. So it might be that you want to be healthy because you have a purpose in life as a parent, as in social activism, in your work. And you need energy and strength and endurance in order to be your best self at whatever your purpose is. And when you're clear about the link between the change that you want to make and that bigger-than-self goal, that you want to be a role model for others, uh, you sort of whatever that is, um, that, that gives people much more sustainable motivation and energy. Um, so I would, I would add that to people's repertoire and to think about ways to make whatever this change is, to really acknowledge that it is bigger than you, both in the sense that there are other people who share your struggles, so you're not alone in it, and also the idea that making this change is not selfish. It's about something bigger than you, and, and that often brings forward a bigger-than-self source of strength. And make monumental change all at once. But you can make a decision every day that is consistent with your goals or your values. And people often underestimate how powerful that is. You know, if if you want to transform your health, you cannot choose that. You cannot choose and say, I am now vibrantly healthy, free of disease, whatever. That's not a choice you can make. But you can say, okay, this is what my commitment is. This is what my goal is. And I'm going to think what today is consistent with that choice. It's one choice I make at breakfast, or it's once today when I crave a cigarette, I'm going to delay for 10 minutes. Just 10 minutes. There's even research showing that if you can delay the first cigarette of the day, for any amount of time, it increases your chances of quitting in the long term and even reduces your risk of diseases like lung cancer. So There are really legitimate benefits to making very small choices. And then you get to pay attention to what the obstacles are. You might not be able to predict it first, but let's say you said, okay, I'm going to make a healthy choice at lunch. And then you hit hit lunchtime. You don't have enough time to go out for something healthy. So you eat this, you know, leftovers that was in the fridge in the office or something like that. Now you know what one of your obstacles are, uh, is and so that you can plan for that in the future. And this, you know, it's very strategic. It's very logical, but people often aren't curious about the process of how small changes can snowball into bigger changes and all of these little tiny barriers that can become bigger than they need to be because we just haven't paid attention to how we allow ourselves to be dissuaded from our bigger goals. So you can think of it as, it's almost like a mindfulness exercise. You get curious about how you make choices. And again, I really encourage people to start with the smallest commitment they think they can make that is consistent with their goals. Uh, and not worry about, well, is that going to be enough? It doesn't have to be enough because it's going to get easier once you've started and then the next small step is actually going to be a little bit bigger and have an even bigger effect on whatever it is you want to accomplish.
0: Another successful day. You've conquered many milestones, yet one tough moment is dragging you down. (laughs) Tame your runaway brain. Drawing on neuroscience, Boost Your Brain and Wellness is a micro-training program that strengthens your composure, confidence and performance. Refine your mind in less than 10 minutes a day at lidium.com.au.